One myth we need to debunk is that humans are creative. I think we give ourselves often too much credit. You know, humans can be creative up to a point, but we're still inhibited by these past experiences. Warning, this podcast may include hard-hitting truths, shocking revelations, and outrageous social secrets. You won't see your life in the same light after this, but if you're ready to face the reality of an always online world, keep listening. This week on Social Minds, we were joined by Parry Malm, who is the CEO and co-founder of Phrasy, an artificial intelligence-led copywriting tool, which claims to be able to write hundreds of thousands worth of email subject lines, Facebook ad captions, and Instagram post captions way more effectively than humans can. Yeah, I think one of the big questions was for me and Eve being copywriters is whether we'd still have a job in 20 years time. So, but no, I think it's like that for a lot of people with artificial intelligence. But the funny thing is I've seen Frazy up close and personal and it is incredible what he can do. It's an ingenious idea. And while it won't write the next great American novel, what it does in terms of creating subject lines and caption copy for social media is absolutely, it's out of this world. And the speed at which it does it, you can definitely see the benefits for brands and marketers. So loads of interesting insights in this one. Now, before you settle down to enjoy this podcast, I'd just like to ask if it's possible to leave a review. If you do enjoy it anywhere where you can, we'd love to hear what you think. I always love reading your reviews, so please do and hope you enjoy. Will artificial intelligence kill copywriting? Well, the answer is absolutely not, but in some ways, yes. Um, AI is not the, the panacea or the sort of apocalyptic existential torment that people face or people think it is according to the media, but there are specific tasks that AI is well-suited to. So I think uh, AI is well-suited to solve problems like email subject lines or Facebook ads or push messages, these very short, punchy things that don't require a huge amount of human creativity. Mm -hmm. But as far as writing the next great American novel, it's not going to happen in my lifetime and certainly not in your lifetime either. That's interesting. And, and in one instance, we've both just breathed a sigh of relief here because obviously we're both <laughs> two copywriters. So good to know that our jobs are intact for the next hopefully 30 years. Um, why, why is that? Because that was one of my later questions I was going to ask you. Why, why can we not see AI? I know we're jumping forward, but writing the next great American novel. Yeah, so, so basically there's, there's a couple of challenges here. So first of all, the way that uh, most AI systems work when they generate language is they work on uh, what's called neural text generation. And the problem with this is the amount of input which goes into it. Mm -hmm. So if you have input of being 100 different novels, you might get you know, some sort of a semblance of something outputted, but it's not going to follow a sort of contextual narrative. Now, the way that you can make it follow a narrative is you can use what's called a grammar-based system. It's a linguistic theory that Noam Chomsky developed at MIT in the 1970s before he became a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> um, and, and basically what that means is you can, you can create this sort of like story template for things to follow, um, but it's only going to be as good as the data which you input into it. Mm. So yeah. here's the whole thing about AI systems that people don't realize. If you put crap into it, you're going to get crap out. Um, what what makes a great novel is that it takes you on this sort of narrative journey that you haven't been on previously mm. and is inherently creative. So sort of short of that, if you're not shooting for um, that side of things and making the next big novel, you said uh, mainly what you're focusing on at the moment is subject lines, Facebook and Instagram captions and push notifications. Mm. Um, other parts of copywriting, though, when it comes to things like slogans and famous taglines, I'll take Nike's Just Do It. Could a bot have written that? <laughs> well, could a bot have written that? Absolutely. 
Um, but would you know if it's good or not? Absolutely not. So the real challenge and, and the, the thing that inhibits um, AI from writing strap lines and things like that is the ability to test it and build a model around it at scale. So absolutely, you could take a button in like our software and it could generate like a billion different strap lines that would all sound human and would be sort of, you know, relatively brand focused. Mm. But how would you know which is good and which is bad? Um, with a strap line like that, you got a one shot deal. Now, if you look at something like an Instagram caption or an email subject line or something, you can actually test that at scale following a scientific method on small groups. And based upon that information, you can then feed it back in and build this sort of like a model so you can predict success in the mm. future. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I wonder though, if, if they're all following this model, Will we not get to a point where it all starts to sound quite samey-samey? <laughs> well, that that is a risk if you follow um, a one particular strategy, which some people seem to want. So strategy one is where you focus on uh, finding the, the optimal language to use in one single campaign. So let's say one Facebook ad or one email push message kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to do that, uh, what you do is you just find the, the single best combination of words and punctuation and emojis and stuff that will get you the highest possible thing there. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, uh, you're going to get repetition from a campaign to campaign basis. And number two, everybody will converge upon the same local maxima. And then you will start all sounding the same across everything. Yeah. Instead, uh, there's a second strategy, which errs more towards Frazee's methodology. And that's where what you do is you follow this longitudinal method. So you don't try to get individual campaign spikes. What you try to get is longitudinal performance over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And by virtue mm -hmm. of doing that and building this model using uh, uh, this sort of like advanced uh, modeling technology, which we've built, you can actually get sustained performance over time while having fresh language time and time again. Interesting. And at the same time, it still retains that tone of voice, I suppose you'd say, because mm. that comes from the, the human yeah, yeah. So like, like I, I don't want to bore you with the technology and stuff, but like, you know, tone of voice is so important. Mm. And, you know, uh, back to this strategy one and strategy two dichotomy that I was speaking about, strategy one would lend itself to, for example, a big database of words and phrases that everybody around the world accesses. So this would be like, you know, you swipe your credit card, you start using it, and boom, you can access the same language as everybody else because you'll get this sort of immediate short-term spike. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we believe that this is a very myopic strategy. What you actually want is sustained performance over time. And that doesn't lend itself to this generic database of phrases. Mm. What you want instead is a, a, a language model, a generative language model that is tailored to individual brand voices that can then adapt to things that change to these sort of uh, externalities that happen in the world. Because mm. that's another thing sorry, I was I was curious about, the fact that obviously language is, is constantly changing. I feel like with every generation, there's new words added to the dictionary and also words that have to be taken out of what's like modern slang. So imagine... Um, you, you have the word groovy that was once really groovy and now it sounds horrible and anyone who says it is going for that cool dad. And then there's words like, you know, lol and fierce and bye Felicia. Could it keep up with trends like that and know when to leave certain words behind and pick up new words as quickly as language is changing? Okay, cool. I was going to say groovy right now, but I don't want to sound old. <laughs> what does bye Felicia mean? That's a total what? Is, is that a thing? Yeah, bye Felicia when you're done with something. 
Really? Yep, it's a thing. Cool. I'm going to write that down and then say it and sound like a super weird dude when I say it. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you for that that, that little well, tidbit. It makes you feel better. I've never heard of it, but again. Oh my God, I'm yes, no. you have. I mean, I... I still say rad. That's because I like I, I grew up skateboarding in the early '90s, so I guess like that's what you do. In the, I don't yeah. think rad ever caught on in Britain, did it? I don't know. We, just, we sort of there was that period, I think, where there was like a big sort of American sort of skater culture in the early '90s. <laughs> when think, was that? And, uh, I think one eight two days, definitely. Well, maybe in <laughs> Bristol. Well, and and we had we had like um, uh, the word choice and the word awesome. Of course, awesome is one of Frazee's brand words, but we had choice and awesome. And sometimes something was like so choice and so awesome, we would call it chawsome. And that's like a very localized dialect to uh, Coquitlam, British Columbia, in case you're wondering. <laughs> so like little nuances like that, can it, yeah. does it know how to work with them? Yeah. So, so one thing that, that we've done at Frazee, which is pretty uh, unique, is, is we've built um, a, a system um, for computational linguists to come into our company and create these models for companies. Now, what's cool about this is, uh, is we've created a whole new like job path for like linguistics mm -hmm. graduates. Because previously, if mm -hmm. you graduated from like linguistics, you'd have two career paths, right? You could be a translator or you could be a teacher. Yeah. Um, and we realized that there's this huge skill set, especially in England, where so many people study the sort of like formal linguistic structure of, of language. So we actually built this system where we can bring in like really smart, really intelligent linguistics graduates as first jobbers train them up on this system. And what they do is they build these models and then tweak these models based upon um, either these, these sort of uh, external linguistic forces in the world or based upon client briefs and client brand voice alterations. Mm. Um, so there, there absolutely is like, like a level of human machine interaction, which allows us to ensure these generative algorithms um, stay on fleek. Yeah, Ooh, well done. Very yeah. good, very yeah. good. I mean, you convinced me that as well, actually. <laughs> but this, this, this is brilliant, actually, because this is a complete contrast to. Because we've spoken a lot, a lot about AI on on this podcast, and there's definitely two schools of thought. You've got the school of thought that no, it is coming to take our jobs, and then you've got the school of thought that no, it's not. And and what you're talking about is this human interaction with AI to make something that was better before. That's better yeah. than before. Like so new I, jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, this whole thing about um, AI coming to steal our jobs, I think is is it's very convenient to uh, sell column inches. So for those of you mm. um, under 30, a column inch used to be a measurement of media in newspapers. Uh, for those of you under 20, a uh, newspaper is like a website, but on paper. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. I sound like an, an, an old man right now, don't I? <laughs> no. I'm going to shake my fist at a cloud in a minute. But... Um, so, so what's actually killing the most jobs these days, we've seen it happen generation upon generation, is not AI, it's actually automation. So, you know, we're in Manchester right now, you think about the, the millions of people who were employed at cotton mills, and then the majority of that textile process was automated, and millions of people, yeah. you know, had to be retrained, mm -hmm. find new jobs, or, you know, face like real um, economic disparity. Um, AI itself, uh, it, 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 it is like, like you know, uh, uh, reducing certain jobs, I guess, um, in some ways. But the real smart uses of AI is to actually like make humans better at what they do. So what automation does is, you know, if you're, you know, if you've got a pin and a pin head and you connect them, you know, this whole sort of like, like mm -hmm. Adam Smithian um, theory of like specialization of labor and whatnot, mm -hmm. then machines are better at that because they can do that at scale faster with fewer errors than humans can. Right. But if you think about, you know, writing copy, a machine is ne never, never going to be able to like just generate language from nothing that makes sense and is on brand. You need mm -hmm. this whole sort of control factor in yeah. there. 
And that's where this whole concept of human-machine interaction is very interesting and creating new job categories. But that doesn't make many headlines, and, and people would rather talk about um, the sort of negative aspects, which we've yet to actually see happen in the marketplace. Mm. So now I want to uh, come on to as well that sort of, uh, we, we've touched on it briefly, but uh, as, I mean, as, as you'll know, as, as copywriters, one of these sort of skills in your in your toolbox, I suppose, is uh, that wit element and humor. And how how effective is a machine at cloning this sort of thing? Because this is, again, another argument that we hear that AI can't clone creativity. And I remember a, a talk re, uh, recently, and I think it's the left side of your brain is the creative one. Mm. And it's like, no, AI is very right brain side minded. But um, yeah, well, I like, 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 I think, first of all, one, one myth we need to debunk is that humans are creative. I think we give ourselves often too much credit, much like how nobody is a bad driver, everybody else is a bad driver, for yeah. example, right? Um, so, you know, humans are, are creative to a point. There's nobody more creative out there than like a five-year-old kid, for example, who can make up imaginary friends and like find a, you know, very intricate game to play with a ball of paper and they call it paper ball. They just crunch that motherfucker up and play with it kind of thing, <laughs> right? Um, but then as we get older, we start to like, you know, get experiences and our brain creates these like heuristics and these cognitive shortcuts. We start applying a huge amount of bias to like situations. So, you know, humans can be creativity up to a point or creative up to a point, but we're still inhibited by these past experiences. So let's take the um, example of um, the wide world of email subject lines, which mm. is, I know, really exciting. I'm great at parties, right? It's super good. <laughs> um, it's great. Um, so like, um, you know, if it, like, let's say we're like a shoe company and we're selling shoes at half off, for example, how many ways do you think you can say that same offer, right? If we were to go and like, and say, you know, each of us has to write down like 20 different subject lines saying the same thing that are all compelling and on brand. We go through and even the most creative of us, you, I'm sure you guys have, have experienced this. You can write about, you know, three or four of them you get off the top of your head real quick. Mm. And then you mm -hmm. get a bit stuck and then, you know, you start to write iterations of the previous ones. So you're just sort of spinning things for minor variations. To get 20 is very hard, right? So for something like that, where you need to say the same thing in a multitude of ways, humans are actually not, not very good. And, and that's okay. Humans don't need to be good at everything. What humans are even worse at, though, is predicting the efficacy of language before it goes out. So we have these preconceived bias. Mm. Uh, biases? Is that the plural? Bias? 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 Bias. Bees. We have these preconceived bees, right? <laughs> um, that like humor and wit um, is an effective copywriting strategy. Um, and we believe that. And so we write copy that, that is humorous and witty to sort of reconfirm these ex this, this existing cognitive bias, mm. which we have. But what if it's not? What if actually testing out a wide range of, of diverse outputs um, teaches you something about your audience that you didn't know before? Okay. Here's where I struggle with it, because I think that sometimes, maybe this is just being a cocky copywriter, I'm not sure, but people, like the audience, don't always know what they want. So if you came up with like the best possible uh, subject line out of all the different iterations you could have thought of, um, and they sort of tell you whether it's through A-B testing or what, which one works best, it's because they haven't been able to see past what you've offered them. So think of like the most innovative taglines or uh, in the world it's like um if nike's just do it so it was presented to them and they have like no idea that 
something like that was possible. They're only used to hearing what they've already heard. Mm. So that time where you can actually come out and surprise them with something brand new, they're like, oh, I didn't realize this is what I was going to respond to until I saw it to respond to. Does that make sense? No, it, it, it certainly does. And and especially with like language, when, when you're exposed to a, to a piece of language, there's a huge amount of different information you're processing at the mm. same time in your brain. Um, and, and, and each person is, is different to an extent. And if you were to, you know, send out emails to like millions of people with the, with the, the, the subject line, just do it over and over and over, for example, then it might work the first time, but over time people will become de desensitized to it. Yeah. Um, but to the original question about, can a machine be funny? Can a machine show wit? Can a machine understand the nuances of language? Absolutely. It's all about how it's trained and what constraints are set to the generative mm. model. Um, I think what's really key is um, is to basically, you know, try out a bunch of stuff. And sometimes what works is, is not what people expect. And people sometimes mm -hmm. are very loath to try out new stuff. You know, the status quo is very comfortable and um, inertia is a very strong force. But when people can jump out of those sort of, you know, comfortable situations and start trying things that sort of, you know, push their, their cognitive boundaries a bit, quite often the uh, re results are very pleasing. Mm. It's interesting in hearing you say that as well, Pat. It's very, very interesting. The the point about uh, human wits. We've we've long relied on them, thinking that they are effective. But there's definitely, um, and any I, I suspect any copywriter can you know agree to this that you have that self pleasing sort of moment where you come up with something really, really witty, and you're like, oh, this is an absolute. This is genius. This is so smart. How hilarious am I? And it's completely yeah. And like you said, that might not necessarily be the best option and looking at some of the um, stats I've got down here. So for, for Domino's, you've seen a 57% click uplift, a 35% growth for Gumtree. These are, these are huge. What, what sort of, uh, what KPIs do you look at? Because we've gotten to a point now, I suppose, where just getting anybody to open an email in the 2000 that lie dormant in your inbox is like a challenge. Getting somebody to open an email yeah. and to convert be that a purchase, a sign up, a white paper past that is even harder. So where 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 do you approach that in terms of um, the A-B testing you do and the, the copy that Frazee suggests? Yeah, so as far as the actual like testing methodology goes, we, we need to, um, you know, base it upon what the customer wants to achieve. So with the example of Gumtree, they found their open rates were decaying massively. Now Gumtree obviously has, you know, millions of products at, at, at any one time. Um, so they're actually mostly concerned about making their brand sort of top of mind. And when people are in purchase mode to go buy, I don't know, a secondhand tree or something. You can't, secondhand tree? <laughs> Why is that the example I thought of right now? Yeah, Isn't that weird? Sofa, games console, going, new car. That sentence was tree. just going so good and then it just got away from me. But you know, a secondhand something, right? Then they want to be top of mind so that Gumtree, you know, comes first. So, so for them, core engagement metrics like opens and clicks are absolutely key. Now, with Domino's, what they want is they want you to purchase Domino's when it's eating time, basically. And they don't want you to go to, I don't know, Just Eat or Burger King or wherever else you might go. And I thought of good examples that time. That's great. I'm glad that I didn't go like... <laughs> like to the forest and go by, a, I don't know. <laughs> I moved away from the tree metaphor, which is useful. Um, so they focus on more of this like long run attribution model, which is why we sort of gone down to the actual ROI numbers, which they get. Mm -hmm. um, but basically what we really focus on is not, um, you know, these sort of made up numbers. We focus on the, the delta of what the human does versus what Frazee does. Mm -hmm. And that's the absolute key. Because I think there's a lot of... Um, 
obfuscation in the marketplace right now with technology where every company out there is going, oh, we'll, we'll do this technology. We'll make you more money, this and that and the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a very sort of opaque measurement process. And I think that does a real disservice to marketers. Mm. Um, or you try to like uh, uh, find a little bit of data and create a false narrative around it just mm. because there's a little bit of data there. And you, you just sort yeah. of follow these sort of random variance paths just to sell a deal. Instead, we focus on, um, you know, here's what the human did. Um, and over a series of campaigns, usually like 15 or 20 like different email sends or different Facebook ads or something like that, here's what Frazy did. And that delta um, defines the uplift and defines the business case for them to invest more. But they're worlds apart, aren't they? Yeah. The the uh, just thinking about myself, like you said, you know, in terms of how many subject lines could you write that are different, you you eventually hit walls, don't you? Yeah, definitely. You, you know, um, no, you're you're absolutely right, and this is a challenge which 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 humans have. So like like you know, I've I've written a lot of copy in in. In, in my career, and I've worked with hundreds of copywriters, right? And what copywriters are so good at is like more sort of longer form, the stuff that that really sort of like sends a message and stuff that really sort of goes into the benefits of stuff and sort of, you know, more elongated stuff or these brand-based strap lines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're working for a, a company and you have a very high cadence of say push messages on your phone, you're doing like three a week, say, right? Even the most creative, best copywriter in the world, number one is going to have an off day. And number two is going to run out of a good idea about how to say the same yeah. thing in a different mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's what Frazy focuses on. Now we off are, days for bots. Well, right, right. And we're basically like making sure this fly is like, it's doing my head <laughs> it's in. crazy. It's literally right? doing my head in. It's nuts. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get it. Oh, there you go. It's foam though. Oh, wow. I don't think that's going to kill it. Oh, well. But, but that's, that's exactly what. Oh, so close. Oh no. Okay. But um, so, so you've got this like whole problem of like hitting creative walls, right? And when you're doing the same thing over and over, number one, uh, humans fall into these like status quo routines. You get a bit lazy and then it becomes a chore. You're like, oh, oh you know, we got this push message going out or we have a Facebook ad going out. I got to mm. think of another bit of copy. Mm. And you kind of like screw the pooch on it a bit, right? This is just human nature. Mm. So what Frazy does is it, um, is it uh, re removes that sort of stress point and takes away that bit of copywriting that first of all, you know, in general, copywriters don't like, and number two, probably aren't the best at, and lets them focus on the stuff that they are good at. Mm. And then ultimately by getting, you know, more clicks through to your website or more people opening your emails or whatever your metric is, more people are viewing the work that you're most proud of. Mm. So it's actually quite mm. symbiotic. Yeah. I, I know we, we've spoken like quite a lot about email marketing, um, but obviously you work with stuff for Facebook and Instagram as well. Mm. Uh, just curious to know um, how it differs really. Tell us a little bit more about that side. Yeah. So, so as far as like, like the actual language itself, you, you have um, uh, much more flexibility with the uh, structural aspects of a, a Facebook ad. So, you know, you know, a, a, a subject line is always going to be like that. It's always going to come out in a linear form, whereas Facebook, you can use multiple spaces. You can, you know, lots of different stuff. Um, it's also a lot more restrictive in some ways because there's basically like no overarching like advertising God saying you can do this and you can't do that. Whereas mm -hmm. with Facebook, everything needs to be approved by whatever bot they have approving stuff. Um, but the actual like generation is not not really a challenge. The, the objection that people usually have is they go, well, on Facebook, I need to focus on having you know, a better video or a better um, image or something like that. Um, 
and they sort of like leave the copywriting until the last minute. And I think that that's a real disservice. We've done tests around this, right? And the actual uplift that you can get by having better copy in many cases, not every case, but many cases, um, is much more than the effect you get from just having a better video. And we've actually yeah. done these tests. Mm. Now, we would agree with you there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. definitely, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But, but, but the end reason, right? So, you know, on Facebook or, or Insta, you, you log in, your feed like refreshes, you get the little do, 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 then it refreshes. Then you scroll through, you see an image. And then in the case of, of Insta, you go and read the copy. Or in the case of Facebook, you scroll up and read what the copy is. Mm. It's actually hugely powerful because mm. the, the um, image, they say a picture is worth a thousand words but the words is where the call to action is. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. I've even seen it, um, I know Steve gave an example in one of his talks about two fitness influencers who he was helping to grow on Instagram. And they had very, very similar audiences and were posting very similar images. And one of them was m way more successful than the other. And he said it came down to the captions because one of them was doing captions like, happy Monday, it's hump day. And the other one uh, was aligning their captions uh, and their fitness photos, giving like really good advice on, um, you know, what exercises they've done that week, what they're eating that week. And it was so much more in depth. And he said the difference was just absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely. And like a great example here is my um, personal hero and future president of the US, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, um, <laughs> where every Sunday he'll post a picture of like sushi and peanut butter cookies. And yet I still read everything he writes about them. It's all about his cheat day and all about, you know, like sipping tequila and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you go so, away feeling inspired because it's because it's the rock, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like I'm an old school rock guy because I, I watch a lot of wrestling growing up. When you grow up in Canada, you watch wrestling and listen to hair metal. That's w just what w you do. WrestleMania. I, I watched it when it was WWF and then the uh, panda <laughs> people sued them. Anyways, enough about that. Um, <laughs> but but it's it's so true. We're, we're like, you know, like, Imagery absolutely matters, but mm. I think a lot of people overvalue the the impact of imagery. And if you mm. don't have this strong messaging to back it up, um, then the 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 image lacks context or the video lacks context. Yeah, you know? See, I I know I really hundred percent agree with you. But uh, we were speaking to a woman a few weeks ago called Kat, who's a futurist, very very impressive in what she does, and she basically explained to us how as a society, we're becoming a lot more visual. And she thinks, say in the next 200 weir, uh, years, that text and copy will write itself out of society. Where do you stand on that? I mean, I'm gonna be dead, dead in 200 years, so I don't really care, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it, it's great to sort of prognosticate about stuff that might happen to like our grandchildren's grandchildren. And there are some people like futurists, for example, who are very qualified at doing that. I tend to be much, much more of a pragmatist. Mm. And for the the duration of of my career and the duration of Frazee existing as a going concern, language absolutely matters. Um, whether or not in a hundred years, will, will our technology still be around? I mean, in a hundred years, will we still be driving cars? It's a great question. Mm, I'm not, not. I'm just not qualified to answer it. Fair enough. Can I just chip in there? I, I, I was just going to say, I'm surprised Eve managed to keep a straight face for your um, WWE, WWF analogy. Oh, God. She did actually go to a fancy dress party recently dressed as Mrs. McMahon. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> uh, so Linda or Stephanie? <laughs> Linda. Linda. Very good. Now, um, she she uh, ran for Congress and, 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 and didn't win. Um, 
but she was a great character. I mean, do you remember? You might not, but it was the late 80s where like Stone Cold Steve Austin was at the height of popularity. <laughs> and then it turned out he was shilling for Mr. McMahon, who became the greatest heel <laughs> in the history of wrestling. I got to ask you, what led you to dress up as Linda McMahon? That's very yeah, random. It was my friend's birthday party. Uh, there's a pub corn in Leeds called the Otley Run, and it's mandatory to dress up. And uh, he loves WrestleMania. Um so yeah, that was, well, I didn't want to go as a female wrestler because they're all a bit naked and I was like, not going to get let into a pub if I go as a female wrestler. And Linda McMahon just came into my head. That's fantastic. That, that's the most <laughs> random thing. I've still got wig and everything. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I thought I just had to throw that in there. But I've got, so I've got to ask you, 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 you made an interesting point though, and I've read it as well in um, some of the interviews that you've done, this, this focus um, on emotion and a lot of so much of what we do, especially on social media, is emotion driven. Mm. Now, with that in mind, I'm really interested to know what you make of clickbait and uh, the, that sort of trend that we've gone towards mm. for, that's that's taken over every sort of because we we look at a lot of copy now, don't we? And it's you, you definitely toe a thin line between yeah. you know a, a, a well written CTA and clickbait. Yeah. So where where your yeah, well, well, the the um, point of um, emotion is a valid point. There's 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 a bunch of people out there going right now. You need to use emotion in your marketing. And they've actually created like consultancies and even technology companies surrounding this. And I'm like, when have we ever not used emotion to sell stuff? Mm. Like this is just what marketing is. And if you're not sort of triggering emotional cues when you're doing marketing, then you're probably a bit of a shit marketer, you know. In in but that's beside the point. I think where clickbait and this sort of real sort of aggressive messaging has gone wrong is people are actively recommending uh, and, and, and promoting the use of negative emotional cues in advertising. Mm -hmm. So things like anxiety and guilt. I know of um, a, a technology company who we sort of compete with sometimes who actually go to conferences and go, you know, it might not be very nice, but anxiety and guilt works. So you should focus your messaging on these uh, emotional mm -hmm. triggers. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's wrong from a number of standpoints. Um, the two main standpoints are one is moralistic and one is business focused. From a moralistic standpoint, um, there are people in the world, uh, especially, you know, these days where, where it's sort of um, in the common narrative who suffer from, you know, um, uh, overt mental health issues. Many of them have, you know, problems with anxiety or um, with like uh, uh, using extravagant spending habits um, to, to try and make themselves feel better and mm. stuff. And this, this messaging is effective because often it targets those people who are predisposed to respond to those messages. So mm. I think mm. there's like yeah. a moral argument there. That's often a, a hard one to, uh, you know, get past a CFO to, to sign a check. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think it's mm -hmm. something that we need to be aware of that like marketers don't operate in vacuums. What we do has a real effect on people surrounding us. Yeah. But the business reason is actually quite a sound logical reason, right? Where basically what you're doing is you're training your customers to like feel unhappy when they're purchasing your stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you go on um, a travel site and you're trying to, I don't know, book a flight or book a hotel, shows this little countdown clock. There's only four seats left at this price, all this kind of stuff. They're trying to like make you feel anxious. And I don't know about you. I hate booking travel online. It's yeah. a very unpleasant experience. Mm -hmm. It makes booking you feel anything, bad. Tickets when they're like sixty seconds left, yeah. and they're like, "This is right. horrible!" Right, and, and then next and, time and I'll so, be like, "Someone else can do it." Well, and 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 this is and this is because what people are focused on. They're focused on these on on these very short term 
um, numbers coming in. They have a monthly quota or a, or a quarterly quota. And if they don't come in, then their CFO comes down and shouts at them, right? So they're just very, they become very transactional um, and they're, they're, they're forgetting that their brands matter mm. and that their customers' emotions fundamentally matter, fun, fundamentally matter as well. Um, so I personally think um, if you're going to use, um, you know, emotional triggers in your marketing, you absolutely should. That's what marketing is. But don't actively use these shitty emotions because your customers matter and their emotions matter. Yeah, mm. we actually ran um, a survey here uh, a little while ago that found that 50% of uh, teens that we'd asked said that happiness um, was overwhelmingly the thing that they cared about the most. So we talk about uh, emotive marketing a lot here as well. And though it has been known, obviously, fear and anger and things like that are very uh, high on like the hierarchy of emotions, that happiness is actually what especially younger generations are after. So you're more likely to engage them if you just make them happy. Well, yeah. And you'll always get consumers who are fundamentally price conscious and they don't. And, and the trade off there is they will buy stuff at the cheapest price if you use these sort of anxiety and guilt and fear based tactics. Mm. Um, and so there are certain brands who might want that. You're sort of like um, uh, you're, you're sort of like 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 pound shop type brands. But if you if if the if if your brand is is aspirational and if you want to be in a sort of higher echelon and esteemed in consumers' eyes and create these these long running um, sort of like uh, connections with consumers, then focusing on these cheap, lazy, short term tactics will detriment you in the long run. Mm -hmm. You'll get a spike in this quarter, but it just fundamentally will not sustain. So how how do you feed that sort of thinking into your software? Because you said before that um, guy who spoke at the conference that it's not very nice, but it works. And sort of uh, loosely speaking, if if your technology works off things that have worked in the past, would it not come up with the same solution? Yeah, it's a great question. And 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 just to qualify that, this um, person who is speaking said it works very sheepishly. Um, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, uh, it was a very odd sort of graph, which they use because they said you should always use anxiety and then guilt and try to create these sort of bi binary aspects. The problem oh. about like trying to like define things as, as any one emotion or, or a, a, a different thing mm. uh, in the zero sum approach is that it just doesn't make sense. You, you don't feel like either all the anger or no anger. Things yeah. exist on a spectrum, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And there will be some things that, you know, could uh, evoke some level of anxiety, right? But at the same time, it could also evoke a level of happiness. That's not inherently bad. Mm. But to overtly say, you know, use guilt and use anger and use all this stuff to sell more stuff, even if it does work, you're probably looking at a very short window and you probably need to take a course in like, you know, statistics that last longer than three campaigns. I'm just going to throw it yeah. out there. Um, but uh, as far as uh, to your question about how you like stop it from getting in in the first place, this is what our computational linguists do when they, when, when they create these language models on a brand-to-brand -brand basis. They ensure that um, we're not using these cheap, lazy tactics mm. to sell more stuff because we know, and our statistics have proven, you get that brief spike at the front, mm. um, but then it trails off. Yeah. And what we want is we want, you know, we aren't, I, I wouldn't describe us as like a shaken bottle of Coke, which you then open and sprays it, you know, because then you got no Coke left. We're more like a boiling kettle. We sort of gradually get hotter and hotter and hotter. And once you boil, it keeps boiling as long as the stove's on. Interesting. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. It really is. And hey, I'm acutely aware of the fact that we are running out of time. So I just want to end on a final port, uh, point. And this almost feels a bit like uh, opening Pandora's box here. But <laughs> copywriting with 
everything that's going on in voice at the moment. So we've spoken a lot about copywriting now. How do you think uh, that landscape will be affected by voice? And if we're always talking to a bot and a, uh, sorry, a, like a smart speaker and a smart speaker's speaking back at us, where does that time for reading and writing and all that come into it within the marketing sphere? Yeah, I think that that's that's a really tough question. So 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 I'm not heavily. Um, immersed in the voice market. I'm a bit of a Luddite in my personal life, to be honest. I I, I, I like smashing things that you plug into the wall just for fun. Um, <laughs> but like, um, I, I think voice serves a certain purpose. So it's real sort of point of sale stuff. So let's go, you know, oh, I feel like listening to some Megadeth right now. You guys should listen to Megadeth. They are like the second greatest metal band to ever exist. I'm just gonna throw it out there. Then that's a very point of sale based thing. Or I run out of washing powder. So that's a very sales-based thing. Mm. Um, but then, you know, what you start getting, it's good to, to buy stuff that you can buy at the pound shop to which you are um, a brand agnostic. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Purcell or, I don't know, Dove or something. I can't even name more than one laundry brand. That's but but you're but right. But 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 you're basically you know um, when buying that stuff, you're you're relatively indifferent because it's a commodified product. Um, and for that, I think it will become very very transactional, and copy will become less and less important. The vast majority of products are not like that. So mm. so when you buy clothes, when you buy a pair of glasses, you know a, a camera, a microphone, it's fundamentally not commodified. You actually want to understand the quality and you need to be told what that quality is. Mm. So I don't see copywriting dying a death um, from, from voice, uh, despite what futurists may tell you. <laughs> well, that is very good to hear. Another huge sigh of relief and on both of our <sighs> point. Uh, for at least another decade. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. So entertaining. Thank you very much, Pad. Really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. About all of this. Thank you. Enjoyed this episode? A like, a share, or a quick review will enable us to bring you hard-hitting truths and outrageous social secrets every week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with Theo, Eve, and music by Pierre Flass.